You're listening to Vermont Credit Unions on Air, a service of the Association of Vermont Credit Unions. I'm Joe Bergeron, president of the association. We're recording this podcast at right about the midpoint of the Vermont Legislature's 2020 session. And so thought of the good idea to take the temperature of this session and share some thoughts about what's happened so far and what we might be looking forward to. To do that, we've enlisted the aid of the two lead members of our association, State House Advocacy Team, Adam Nekrasen and Jessica Oski. That's very, th- that's, <laughs> what a blooper right away. Thanks very much, Adam and Jessica, for joining us today. Um, Happy to be it, here. And Thanks, you're, you're on break this week. So this is like a little vacation for you during the State House session, right? Yes, town meeting week break is a well, welcome, Yeah, it, Welcome break, not exactly vacation. Correct. Right, right. right. So anyway, uh, so we're at about the midpoint. Crossover is when legislators return next week, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, like I already said, what's happened in the first half and what do we have to look forward to? So Adam, how about we start with you? Sure. Some highlights from the first half. It's important to start with the governor, Phil Scott, who's very popular and um, experienced at this point in his leadership at the state capitol. His big events are a budget address and a state of the state address. And they come out in late in January and they really... Um, are the governor of our state's, you know, big moment in the legislative session to kick off an agenda. Governor Scott's high notes were um, that we have a, a real demographic challenge in Vermont. You know, we're an aging state and, and we uh, um, don't have enough young people in our schools and in our workforce. Um, he's got a lot of concern about the rural economy. You know, the urban counties are, are kind of the hot part of our economy and he's got a lot of concerns about the rural counties, economies, and workforce. A lack of uh, workers to, to fill jobs in Vermont is a real mm-hmm. challenge. So the governor's package of fiscal uh, leadership and uh, policy agendas really galvanize around those concerns. And he kicked those off in January. And then the, the other kind of high note are that the legislative committees immediately go into a bunch of work and we're nearing crossover and have spent you know, seven or eight weeks, Jessica keeps tabs on things real close, and uh, committees have been churning away and, and trying to produce their, their big legislation. There's some, some big topics that have been on the House floor and in the legislature, and we can talk about them some more, but cool. um, Jessica, what's your sense of the kind of early opening big thoughts? Uh, just for those that don't know the phrase crossover, it's the date um, at which bills that are moving have to be out of the body in which they were introduced if they're going to make it over to the other half um, and have a chance at survival before the end of the session. And that's Friday the 13th. Um, so committees have been busy trying to get their work done so that they their bills that are their priorities have a chance to move. Um, and uh, there's nothing. I mean, everything. <laughs> you said it all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you, t- you took the win. So keep Friday the thirteenth for crossover yeah. day. Wow, yeah. I have a board meeting that day too. So it's a you know going to be a bad day all the yeah. way around. Probably. It's a busy day. We don't yeah, go home like, till late that night. Um, so uh, you, you you touched on the governor's priorities and whatnot, and one of those was about workforce. And I know this, this is not specific to credit unions, obviously, but you know every time I'm together with um, a group of business leaders from throughout the state um, or talking to credit unions, you know that issue comes up frequently um, that they don't have uh, a whole lot of some challenge, but not as much challenge at the at the low end of uh, the wage range for jobs or the very high end. But it's that middle section where they're looking for some degree of expertise and whatnot. Um, that's the biggest 
crunch kind of area. Right, and lawmakers, uh, you know, what what the governor and lawmakers are doing about that um, is trying to address a number of issues around, um, you know, living and working in Vermont, affordability of housing being top among them. And so, you know, there's a bunch of activity in the state house uh, working on trying to make more affordable middle-income workforce housing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, So... You talked about the governance priorities. So, what have been the big issues in the state house between the two of you so far that you know legislators have been trying to move, or, or maybe, have gotten traction or not? But whatever their hot issues have been. Right. I'll rattle a list, and then we can talk about them a little bit. Um, minimum wage, increasing the minimum wage, uh, which did successfully move forward despite a gubernatorial veto. That was a real big event at the state house. It's a it's a rare moment in the state capitol when. The legislature overrides a gubernatorial veto, and that has only happened on the minimum wage legislation so far. It failed to happen on paid family leave. And relative to uh, other minimum wage increases in other states or other um, locations, this one is pretty modest. Um, it just goes up to twelve twelve dollars and fifty five cents by twenty twenty two. Wow! Yeah, and there it stops a- there. It doesn't continue beyond there. No, there's a. I think there's an inflationary factor built in, but oh. yeah, there had been a lot of talk about building in a legislative path to fifteen dollars an right. hour, and ultimately, the governor's objections to that level of change led lawmakers to scale back their ambition uh, and move this incremental change to the minimum wage. That turned into a battle where he had vetoed even that change, and um, in a unique moment, they had literally one hundred votes in the House of the 100 needed. Mm-hmm. So there was no room to spare. So there. when there is a, maybe this is uh, not a very informed question, but I'm going to ask anyway. So when there's a gubernatorial, I mean, a, a, a veto override by the Democratic controlled Senate and House over the governor's uh, veto of that minimum wage bill or any bill, um, does, does that have uh, overriding effects on the legislation that comes after that, that things that the governor is trying to get through maybe? It does color the the tension in the building, and the dynamic before this minimum wage vote was that, you know, the governor had could not be overridden, mm-hmm. and so, um, you know, it has created more expectations of the legislative Democrats that they can drive their agenda despite the governor, um, and it has increased the the governor's focus on, you know, can I compromise on certain measures, sure. or where are the lines in the sand that I will have to be very sharp about? Sure. Um, and since we're in an election year, you know, everyone's thinking about the, you know, the public relations right. of their work. And, right. and so it's a pretty tense time in that regard. Because these two override votes were very close and one passed and one failed, mm. I think that still leaves the governor in a bit of a power position. It would be different if it was a, a, a slap shot and right. both of them were overridden. Um, by the House, but they're very close, and every issue is slightly different, and those folks in the middle could go either way. So That's right. A lot the barn doors there. have not been thrown open yeah. at the yeah. State House for the Democrats' agenda at all. And, and in fact, the, the governor's hesitancy continues to be the main factor on any major piece of legislation. For example, climate change legislation is really hot, and there are several bills, that, um, and we will see a potential veto showdown there as well. Yeah. And um, it's kind of the next big one in the making. 
Another hot topic that is headed to final reconciliation between the House and the legislature and the Senate Senate and the governor. Basically, they're going to sort out finally after years of work on the cannabis uh, retail regulation agenda. It does seem to be moving forward. We'll see over the next month some final details get sorted out. Whether the bill earns the governor's support comes down to a few key issues. Um, But it is next up and does have implications for the credit union community because there are the finance finance aspect of of all that. So even when that legislation, that's S-54, I think it is, right? So even when or if or and when that legislation passes, um, creating the regulatory structure, and I think it creates like a cannabis commission or something like that. Control board. Control board, right. Um, so, but do I recall correctly, there's still going to be a couple of years lead time, probably, or some lead time anyway. Quite a bit. To actually create all this regulation That's right. structure. That's right. The, the legislation will pass and that will begin a regulatory process that involves standing up a regulatory structure and then issuing licenses and the licenses aren't expected to issue under the <clears throat> under the proposal until January 2022. So so even if legislation passes now creating the the statutory structure for retail recreational businesses uh, unlike in Massachusetts and Maine I guess it is now we're not going to see those kinds of businesses in Vermont or not legally anyway for for a few Couple more years, years anyway. yeah wow and that bill, um, the Senate passed a version of the bill, and the House just passed a version of the bill. So now there's going to be a conference committee of the two bodies to work out the details, and that could take a few weeks before they sure. come up with whatever compromises they're going to come up with. Not a not a credit union issue, and uh, probably not something that you've been following. But the governor's well, am I correct in remembering the governor had some uh, desire to have a, a, a better system of roadside testing? And did that's right. That's right. The the he, he uh, wanted local control, right? Uh, some impairment testing on the roadside, yep. uh, and investment in um, prevention of inappropriate use and youth access. Sure. And uh, the legislation is kind of trying to address each of those and follow the news over the next few weeks to see the governor's judgment on whether they've met his mark or not. Interesting. So what else? Um, moving to uh, credit union issues, okay. there's um, two big topics that are in the air, um, and auto lending being the, the main one among them, you know, concerns about consumer protection in the um, purchase of automobiles, particularly used automobiles, is something that legislative committees have been working on for years, and it's possible this year there'll be some legislation the other just to throw it out there unclaimed property which is something where um, we'll see potential changes in regulations or practices that will impact credit unions but on both of these I I really look to you Jessica to help us understand a little bit more about the details on the auto financing a lot's been made about some of the problems with auto financing and potential fraud Um, what actually passed the Senate is not major, um, it's not a major change. It basically requires a dealer to provide a copy of the consumer's credit application, that the application that's used to secure financing to the consumer um, before they leave the, the uh, 
the dealer. Um, and that sounds kind of like a no-brainer, um, mm-hmm. but what had been happening is um, these applications were sent off to the financial institution or the financing company, and the financing was issued, um, but it was oftentimes based on information that was not accurate, and the um, the consumer was not able to complete the terms of the agreement. Uh, so by providing a copy of the agreement, hopefully the consumer can see what information was supplied to the dealer, and everyone can agree that the application was accurate. And there was also originally a provision in there requiring the uh, lender making the loan, a credit union in our case, mm-hmm. to also provide a copy of that very same application, but that seemed kind of redundant and got dropped, right? Exactly. Jessica, yes. is it fair to say the concerns are are not with credit union practices, but not more with the potential that uh, a, a person of less means is in a car buying moment and having a car salesperson kind of inflate their numbers and essentially get them into a loan they can't afford. Exactly. And there was, during this debate, there was no, there were no um, references to credit unions doing, Mm -hmm. um, acting in bad faith. Um, It was really about the dealers primarily. Um, And what we heard from credit unions is that when they deal with, when they have interactions with dealers that are um, questionable, many credit unions stop dealing with those dealers. Sure, sure. But it, just so we don't cast aspersions, although we didn't initiate this legislation, this wasn't like, uh, uh, or was there an assumption that this kind of activity of falsifying loan documentation was rampant across dealers in the state of Vermont? It, I assume it was, you know, some specific instances that yeah. came up. Not rampant at all, but yeah. enough of a problem that to catch that, attention right? that they felt action was needed. Sure. Yeah, lawmakers in Montpelier are bring a pretty sharp pencil to consumer protection. It's really a topic, right. not just auto lending at all, but uh, across all sorts of issues. Uh, the Vermont legislature has got a real keen eye on consumer protection. Well, I think every legislator is going to be responsive when one of their constituents calls up and says, hey, such and such happened to me, whatever the case might be. And I didn't feel that was right or whatever. And whether it's justified or not, legislators are you know, going to be responsive to that because those are their constituents. Yeah, it's really a, a testament to the Vermont style of legislature and governing that we have such an accessible community-based right. group of uh, people in the state capitol who are not professional politicians. They're not well-paid. They're not heavily staffed. It's really a people-based conversation down there. And, Jessica, we often see individual stories really galvanize a moment, and then lawmakers look under the hood and say, Oh my goodness! There's a little bit of something going on right, here. To the story, right? Let's try and nip this in the bud. Or so. What else, Jessica, is happening in the financial services area that uh, should be of interest to credit unions? Well, luckily, not a lot, um, <laughs> <laughs> because while we do have a strong consumer um, protection angle in our legislature, it's often better that they, from a from a um, financial institution's perspective that they stay out of our business for the most part. Um, <laughs> that, As Adam mentioned, the unclaimed po- property bill, this is a huge rewrite of how unclaimed property is managed in the state, and it will impact um, the work that credit unions do. Um, you should be on the lookout for information coming from the treasurer's office or DFR over the summer, or possibly from 
Joe sure. um, explaining those changes. Um, there's, uh, those are really the main things. The high there's, points. There, excuse me? The high points. Yeah, there's yeah. a, there's a, every year there's a bill that makes various changes to banking and insurance laws. There really wasn't anything in the, in this year's miscellaneous bill that impacted credit unions. Um, Can we talk about the tax study for a second? Sure. And the uh, bank angle on that? Because banks in the state of Vermont are subject to a franchise tax, right? Um, which is in lieu of the corporate income yes. tax, which right. as a right. credit union advocate, I'm often explaining to lawmakers, banks have outside owners. They pay profits to outside owners. Therefore, a corporate income tax at that layer, that level, makes sense. Whereas credit unions, you know, nonprofit member-owned, we don't have outside owners. We pay profits to and therefore, a corporate income tax does not apply to us. And you know, we pay plenty of taxes, property taxes, employment right. taxes. Right. Uh, so the credit rooms union movement, and rooms and meals taxes, the credit union movement is a tax-paying uh, you know, or organization. Um, but so we don't have corporate income tax. I'm aggressive on this, Joe. Because yeah. obviously you are, and, yeah. and rightfully so. Uh, but because of where the profits go. That's right. Uh, and That's I, right. I know I was uh, with, and I always point it out, but I was in a meeting with a group of people, I forget if it was yesterday or the day before, um, where somebody from another type of a cooperative was pointing out that uh, you know, not-for-profit cooperatives like credit unions do have to make a profit uh, for safety and soundness purposes. It's just a matter of, you know, where do those profits go? Well, they're earnings, uh, right? We talk right. about them as our earnings, right. and we reinvest them in the members and, and for our safety and soundness. And, you know, what our earnings going into our member owners for the credit union movement are profits being siphoned off sure. and shipped out of state to Wall Street owners in the case of many banks. Um, you know, I know, you know, Jessica, that the legislature was looking at changing the corporate bank tax. And so we've been keeping an eye on that. Um, and they were, they were talking about repealing the bank franchise tax and replacing it with a corporate income tax and many states, um, tax banks that way. Sure. But the, the report, they, the legislature asked the tax department to look at this, um, over the summer, along with a number of other issues related to the corporate tax with the goal being, um, is there a way to structure our corporate taxes so that out-of-state corporations, including banks, but all corporations, pay more of a share of the tax than our in-state companies. Um, you know, the, the hands of the legislature are tied in some ways. They can't pass laws that intentionally favor out-of-state entities over in-state entities. There's some Commerce Clause issues there. But the they, other way around, you mean we can't favor in-state right, over out-of-state, yeah, right? Right, because right. lots of states would start Burden kind of out building of state, walls right. and say, hey, out-of-state businesses, right. we're harming you because we want to have our mm -hmm. own micro-economy. Right, I meant burden out-of-state over right. in-state. Um, but there are some ways that they can structure their taxes so that it has that effect. Um, and so th that's some of the things that the, that the House Ways and Means Committee has been looking at. But the report that came back from the tax department specifically on the bank franchise tax said they really didn't have enough information. They need to do more study. Um, the initial information that they had looked as if if they moved to a corporate income tax to replace the bank franchise tax, the state could actually lose some money. And that could be because of the shelters and the um, tax... Tax avoidance yeah, measures. Tax avoidance right. measures um, that banks would be able sure. to employ. Like, like any other business. Right. right. 
Um, so there's a little bit more study that needs to be done on that before the legislature can make a decision. I don't think there'll be any decision this year. Just for those that aren't familiar, the, the current uh, tax uh, uh, form of corporate tax that's imposed on uh, uh, banks in the state of Vermont, that franchise tax that we've referenced is uh, based on deposits of inst- that the institution holds in the state of Vermont, right? Yeah, so, so decades uh, ago, lawmakers right. said, hey, we're, we're going to have this bank franchise tax as a collection mechanism right. for the corporate income tax. It was you – know, it, it's a relatively straightforward way to have a reliable stream of sure. income from that corporate tax component of state taxation. There I are believe some, it's a little more stable too than the corporate income tax. Sure. Is that right? Yeah. I wouldn't think – well, I don't know about, about you know whether – uh, the amount of tax collected would fluctuate tremendously from period to period, but I would think that from a state of Vermont standpoint, um, collecting tax based on deposits would be probably an easier thing to gauge um, because it's on all the deposits. They either have the deposits or they don't, uh, and there's no tax avoidance measures and so on and so forth or tax shelter uh, exercises and whatnot. So, um, so we'll keep an eye on, on that one and see whether it goes any further. Um, so one big question that, that I've got, and uh, it's not specific to credit unions, but it can affect what we have to do going forward as far as advocacy is concerned. Um, this is an election year, right? And it's a big one uh, in Vermont in that, uh, one, there's, uh, there's a lot of offices to fill. And for us, it starts right at the top with, you know, it's not every day or every cycle that we have someone from Vermont running for president of the United States. Uh, and then it goes down the list from there, right? But so, it's not the first time. <laughs> no, it's not the first time. Um, uh, so I, I'm I'm wondering uh, if you feel comfortable talking about you know what is the, the what the what effect does that have either on the rest of this legislative session or what happens after this legislative session when they adjourn in May sometime. Um, you know, it seems like you know depending on who gets elected to what, uh, there's a potential series of dominoes here that, right. that fall. Yes, the uh, fall elections are a big change election for Vermont State Capitol, potentially. Uh, the top of the ticket, the presidential, the race for governor and the race for lieutenant governor are all going to be um, hotly contested. Mm-hmm. And uh, we may see changes in the governor's office as a result. And we know we will have a new lieutenant governor because uh, – Current Lieutenant Governor David Zuckerman is running for governor. Sure. He's um, Phil Scott's main challenger. Right. There's a primary in August that um, candidates for governor and lieutenant governor have to get through. Um, it's highly likely that David Zuckerman will be the candidate against Phil Scott, and they will have a hotly contested election. Uh, lieutenant governor's got a lot of intrigue and plays into the state house because we already know that two – uh, current senators, the President Pro Tem Tim Ash and Senator Debbie Ingram, both from Chittenden County, are running for lieutenant governor. So, as you said, there's some domino effect here. Were, were either of those? Uh, sorry to interrupt. Were either of those a surprise? Or, or yeah, I would say yes. I mean, I, I would. Um, it's not unsurprising when we talk about it and and we we think about these leaders. Um, uh, the I mean the race for lieutenant governor, right. Tim Ash and, and Debbie Ingram, and there are other candidates. Uh, the Democratic primary is where the action will be, and there's another candidate, Molly Gray, right. who works at the attorney general's office, and so you already see that that's going to be you know a crowded primary stage and ballot. Sure. Uh, but the 
um, the atmosphere, certainly, in the state capitol has the air of an election year in it, mm-hmm. where lawmakers are very focused on um, a couple things, you know, adjourning so they can go out and run for office, yeah. getting the work done neatly and in a way that um, they feel good about. Um, and um, some issues have, you know, particular significance to leaders like the pro tem Tim Ash has been a champion of the minimum wage. It's really probably a number one issue for him. I mean, his politics are, are very similar to Bernie Sanders. They're very working class focused. And the minimum wage was core agenda for him. And that getting through, you know, was a big victory. So if you're running for a key office, it would be good to have in your your uh, bio or whatever that you uh, were effective. An accomplishment, uh, a real accomplishment that delivered to the kitchen table. Right, right. I think the conventional wisdom um, is that Phil Scott is he's well liked, and under normal circumstances would probably we don't even know if he's running yet. Actually, he has not announced. But if he does run, conventional wisdom would be that he might have an easy way, an easy win in November. But the wild card here is that it is a presidential election year, and voter turnout could be different than in years past. This is a extremely um, um, energized year. Meaning voter turnout could be higher. Exactly. Except uh, according to all the NPR reports about uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, not in the young people category, right. but, uh, but across the board for total number of voters. Yeah. So that does, it does pre- present some unknowns for um, the November elections in Vermont. How does the how will the national scene trickle yeah, down? Yeah, definitely to create a. Um, we know there'll be a, a wave of voters who are motivated to vote for Donald Trump's challenger, sure. you know, the Vermont politics. But there was an actually something interesting. You know, we just had town meeting week, and I was reading some of the kind of tidbits that came out, and the election turnout was curious. I don't know if you noticed this, Joe and Jessica. The total number of primary voters because we had our presidential primary at town meeting, even though right. we have our state election primary right, in August. Right, right. The total number of primary voters was the same large number, but there were tens of thousands more that took a Democratic ballot. Hmm. You know, it seems natural that there was a contested uh, Democratic presidential uh, ballot there, and less so on the Republican side. But it does show you that there's this big block of independent-minded Vermont voters who sometimes pull a Republican ballot and sometimes Democratic one. Um, and so that's what makes um, Phil Scott have a lot of viability, candidly, because a VPR poll came out recently, and he had very high favorability ratings. He was actually higher favorability with Democrats than with Republicans. In both cases, it was in the 50s. So, you know, we always say through through the years, and I just don't know how true it is factually, but but it feels like you hear a lot of people saying, you know, when it comes to uh, Vermont gubernatorial race, statewide offices and whatnot, that Vermonters typically don't vote party line. They, you know, they vote for who they like, um, and they don't stick Democrat or Republican or whatnot. And that kind of feels, that goes back to, well, not in recent history, like Jim Douglas, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, there were a lot of people that voted for Jim Douglas, you know, who were not of his party. Um, and so it feels like what you're saying is the same is true for Phil Scott. Yes, the, our, our, our governor is chosen at the end of the day by independent swing voters in Vermont. Um, that's that's very much yeah. been the history of uh, Howard Dean, Jim Douglas, Peter Shumlin, and now Phil Scott. 
So even people it, vote for Bernie Sanders and Phil Scott, and people, right. you know, Republicans, cross party lines to, all and Democrats sure. cross party lines all the time. Right. So kind of going against the grain of what the perception is when you read the, the press. Mm-hmm. You know, That's right. Uh, yeah, the Vermont electorate has a lot of zigzag as it goes yeah. down the ballot. Sure. Um, and so it sounds like the the fact that it's a heated election year um, and that there's a lot of offices, uh, I'll say up for grabs, and but a lot of activity, a lot of press coverage and whatnot, has not had a, uh, I don't know if you could say negative effect on the legislative process in the state house in terms of legislators trying to rush things through or being more contentious about issues just to get you know something under their belt and whatnot we might see a little bit of that towards the end um legislators especially those that are running for another office um, or all of them will be running for re-election do want this session to end so that they can get out on the campaign trail and don't want things to drag on this year and hopefully that'll be the case and that they'll go home early it, it is an orderly session so far, and we have not seen partisanship in an unusual way that uh, kind of clouds the integrity of the work that's being done. Um, there's a lot still on their plate in the next several weeks, uh, and we'll see in particular climate change. Um, Act 250. And Act 250, mm-hmm. kind of land use development reform, right. kind of spring up as as kind of hot topics where the is tension between the legislature and the governor. So I was going to ask you about the, you know, what we should expect in the second half of the session, but it sounds like you just touched on it for the most part. And as far as financial services and credits in particular, there's a few items that we're watching, but we don't expect any big surprises. Hopefully not. There'll definitely be a new law in auto lending that will work well for us. There will, as a credit union, um, person, you'll, there'll definitely be a new law on unclaimed property that people have to this summer kind of understand regulatory compliance and sure. learn about. Uh, and, uh, you know, the cannabis law will be a year or more in the making before right. credit union officials have right. to really make choices on how to engage or not. In effect, but not really any impact for a couple of years yet. Right. If there's a big change in the White House, uh, that could impact the way that our law rolls out as well, and it could impact how credit unions and other financial institutions do business in this area. Sure. Um, so it's a little early to, to be asking you this, but, but I'll ask anyway. So uh, depending on who gets elected to what as far as statewide office and, and beyond there, um, you see much uh, change in House and Senate leadership positions next year, potentially. Yes, we know we will have a new leader of the Senate right, right. in the vacancy that Tim Ash is creating. So the president pro tem, which is a very significant sure. position. Um, we haven't heard much about change in the House leadership. No, but a lot of members um, have announced that they're not running. A number of key members have announced that they're not running again. Um, so Typically, there are 30-plus mm-hmm. new members of the legislature sure. out of the 180. Mm-hmm. Uh, heavily, the ch- the change is often most prominent in the House. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, you know, it's a practically volunteer job. Lawmakers are not well paid. Uh, right. You know, it, it's it's a real challenge on your career or your personal life. And you know, some are able to do it for long term and become veteran lawmakers. And some, particularly, um, you know, people mid career, 
can come for a little while and do it and then you know their career pulls them on or or family life and so we're seeing a bunch of that and there'll be lots of new lawmakers from that natural changeover so we've pretty much used up our allotted time, um, but I don't want to cut the discussion off. If there's anything else either one of you can think of that we haven't touched on that our listeners would probably or, or should hear about. But well, I'd, I'd, I'd wrap by just saying that um, as a credit union movement, it's, it's really heartening to see how much um, the Association of Vermont Credit Unions and, and our members engage with lawmakers because engaging – the Vermont legislature is a very – a citizen-friendly space and a small business accessible agenda there. And so, you know, my closing thought, Joe, is that I feel like the credit union movement is really strong, you know, together and engaged. Uh, you know, f we do a lot to bring credit union leaders to the state house and, and um, you know, credit to you as, as a leader of the credit union movement for engaging with a cooperative mindset on policy issues. It's not uncommon for Jessica and I to be outside of hearing and say, hey, it's cool to be working for the co-op movement because we show up with eyes on the best interest of the member, not eyes on the best interest of our Wall Street or outside owner. Um, and it's meaningful. And I, 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 it's really heartening and, and genuine. And for our, um, you know, our credit union movement members, engage, engage, engage. So uh, that reminds me, uh, you remind me to uh, put in a plug for our Credit Union Day in the State House on April 8th uh, mm -hmm. this year, where we had a, kind of like the, the exhibit kind of thing uh, on the first day or second day of the session. Uh, but April 8th, uh, starting sometime during the noon hour and running through the afternoon, is the day where we'll bring together, hopefully, uh, a lot of credit union leaders from throughout the state of Vermont and have them hear from different elected officials, typically party leaders, uh, chamber leaders, uh, so on and so forth, some statewide officials, um, and get updates about uh, specific legislation in more detail than we did today. Uh, and then we always cap things off at the end of the afternoon with uh, a legislative reception that by that time of year, legislators seem pretty keen on um, enjoying uh, a reception that's provided to them by credit unions. So, so it's a good way for us to help them uh, start wrapping up their uh, legislative session by uh, remembering, oh yes, credit unions are, are those guys that gave us a good reception, but in addition to all the hot issues and, and everything that we've educated them on. Yeah, you guys always have shrimp. They appreciate <laughs> that. Yeah. Yes, they don't get that every day. Um, so any other parting thoughts? Are we good for this session? All right, we'll see you again on the other side. Thank you. All right. Uh, thank you, Adam and Jessica. Uh, we've reached the end of another Vermont Credit on Air podcast and hope you found it interesting. You can hear all of our previously recorded podcasts by searching for Vermont Credit Unions on Air in the iTunes store or on SoundCloud.com. If you've got ideas for a podcast on something you'd like to hear about, send it to podcast at Vermont Credit Unions. That's Vermont Credit Unions with an S dot co-op, C-O-O-P. Until our next podcast, this is Joe Bergeron with... Jessica Oski. That's you. Adam Nekrasen. At the Association of Mont Credians, thanking you for listening.